today, finishing up the book of Colossians. An era has come to an end. Yes. So we're looking at the last 11 verses. Now, on, on the surface, I'll tell you right up front, once we put all the cards on the table here, we don't hide anything. Uh, outside of Leviticus, some of the genealogies, these could potentially be the most poor, boring verses on the planet. Uh, so get ready to run the aisles on this one. But uh, you'll see that what may appear boring at first actually has some dynamite hidden on the inside. Uh, we're entitling this message. Padrusioners, uh, here you may not know this, but we in Minnesota know this phrase, Minnesota nice, right? Minnesota nice. We smile. Uh, we hate conflict. And we, we swallow anger. Well, kingdom nice is a play on words, play on Minnesota nice, but unlike Minnesota nice, it's not at all passive aggressive, as we'll see here in a little bit. So here's what Paul says as he's winding up this passage. Tychicus will tell you all about my affairs. And when Paul talks about his affairs, he doesn't mean what we mean today by having an affair. Uh, he means just his ministry and stuff, in case you didn't know that. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Nice compliment. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul is really concerned to let them know what's going on in his life, and he wants to encourage them. And with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother, who is one of yourselves. Remember that name, Onesimus. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, Paul is in prison when he's writing this, and alongside of him is Aristarchus. He greets you and mark the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, receive him, welcome him. And Jesus, who was called Justice. Uh, Jesus was a fairly common Jewish name in the first century. And it could be that because they worshiped Jesus, they didn't want to confuse the other Jesuses with the Jesus they worshiped, so they would rename folks. So he's called Justice. These are the only men of, of the circumcision, which is to say of the Jews, among my fellow co-workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Paul always had a team around him. Epaphras, who is one of yourselves, a servant of, of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always remembering you earnestly in his prayer that you may stand fully mature and fully, fully assured in all the will of God. So Paul's criteria, as always, is maturity, not numbers. He's not ever concerned about how many people he, he how many disciples he has. He's always concerned about the maturity. And Epaphras here is praying for that, which as I said two weeks ago, presupposes that prayer affects the maturity of other believers, which is why we need to be praying for one another, that we be fully mature in Christ. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, another compliment, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, he's that guy who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, and Demas also greets you. Give my greetings to the brethren at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. In the early church, they didn't have buildings like this. They met in each other's house churches. Whoever had a big enough house would host the church. And so the average church size would have been probably between 20 and 30 people. And everything that's written in the New Testament presupposes he's writing to a group of 20 to 30 people. That's the primary unit. And so this particular church met in the house of this woman who unfortunately was named Nympha. One wonders what she went through in junior high school. It must have been terrible. If she ever had a meltdown, they call her a nymphomaniac. I mean, it's just, it just would have been terrible. But she survived, and now she's the pastor of a house church. I'm just kidding. They had weird names back then. It wasn't until recently that we started getting good names. 
And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. This is how Paul's letters would get disseminated. Uh, one church would read it, they'd copy it and pass it on to another church, and, and so on. And say to Arch Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry which you have received in the Lord. This guy apparently was something of a slacker, and Paul says, give him a little nudge to finish up the project. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Apparently he had dictated the rest of the letter, which was pretty common. Uh, but he, he signs it with his own hand to show that it's from him. Remember my fetters, because he's in chains, he's in prison. Grace be with you. There you go. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba, Father, I thank you for everybody in this auditorium. Everyone's going to hear this message through podcasts or some other means. I pray, God, that you make this a kingdom moment, infuse it with your authority, your grace, your love, and build a kingdom in our hearts. Uh, bring out, Lord God, the, the message that we're to hear from these greetings and these compliments and these encouragements. And make us a people who just have the aroma of the kingdom always on us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. So we have all these compliments, encouragements, Receive one another, welcome one another, blah, 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 blah. Seems pretty boring. How do, you, how do you preach a message on that? Sounds like a Mr. Rogers sermon or something. Won't you be my neighbor? Uh, and and it, where, where's the juice in that? And initially, as we were looking at this passage, I began a couple months ago, so I was wondering how we're going to finish this thing up. I, I was wondering, what, what do you say about this? But I also know, and those who work with me on the messages, know that we serve an upside-down God, right? And we're in an upside-down kingdom. And often what seems trivial to us is supremely important to God. And often what seems supremely important to us is pretty trivial to God. And so we, we just hover on these passages and just say, you know, God, what, what, what are we to learn from this? And as you'll see here in a moment, um, we came to a very different realization. that these, these passages are anything but boring. They're not little niceties, a little addendum to the gospel. Paul's polite way of saying, out of here. No, they're, they're, they're packed with meaning. Uh, something that I think is very, very timely for us here at, at Woodland Hills Church and I think for other churches as well in America. So let me start by setting up this way. Most of you have heard of Plato, ancient Greek philosopher, very influential. Uh, he's had a dominant role in forming the Western worldview. This is a Platonic philosophy or Platonic theology. And fundamental to his whole outlook is this idea that the spiritual world is totally different than the physical world. There's a, there's a big dichotomy between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. The spiritual realm is the realm of perfection, the realm of blessing, the realm of glory, the realm of harmony. Everything's nice up there. This is where God and the gods dwell. It's the realm of perfection. That's the spiritual realm. The physical realm is the realm of imperfection. It's the realm of nitty-gritty details and mundane secular things and trivial stuff, and, and even a bondage. Matter was seen as being really inferior to spiritual stuff. And when the Platonic worldview began to influence Christianity, it had a, a pretty drastic impact on how we think about things, even to this day. And so a lot of people think that, that salvation is when you die, and then your spirit is released from this carcass, this carcass with all of its lust and problems and messiness and all of that, and we finally get free to soar with Jesus in the ethereal realm. It's not at all a biblical view, but that's how most people think about it today. 
at least a lot of Western people think about it today. And then when it gets applied to end times, you have this idea that Jesus will come back and suction Christians out of the earth. And then this physical world and physical cosmos, which is always imperfect and, 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 and you know, fallen and all that, it will be burned up, and then we'll be in the clouds with Jesus in this ethereal realm of perfect harmony and glory and so on and so on. So there's a big dichotomy between the spiritual realm and the physical realm. The thing is that the spirituality of the New Testament is completely contrary to that. Um, it's the opposite of Plato's. Because at the center of the gospel is this proclamation that God, the, who is spirit, became a human being. The giant God, the, the infinite God, became a small human being, entered into our smallness, into our trivial little mundane existence. He took it on himself. And then even beyond that, he went to the cross. And he took on our sin and took on our failings. And he even took on our curse, our God-forsaken separation, all the consequences that sin deserved. And so here we have a message of a God who reveals himself. Because the cross is the supreme revelation of who God is. God reveals himself not by how distinct he is from the physical world, how distinct he is from all the messiness and triviality and the details and the carnality and the fullness of this world. No, he doesn't reveal himself by contrasting himself with this the way Plato did. He reveals himself by diving into it, by taking on himself, by uniting himself with this. This is a God when his infinite glory comes down and becomes one of us and takes on the worst that we have to offer, he dives into our hell, dives into our physical existence, takes it upon himself. This is what's called incarnational theology. He becomes God incarnate. Or it's cruciform theology. It's cross-like. Because on the cross, God bears our sin. God reveals who he is by diving into our mess because that's what love does and God is love. Love doesn't run away from the messiness and the nitty-gritty details, and the trivial stuff, and the fallen stuff of this world, love dives into that and takes it upon itself and redeems it and reconciles it to himself. Unlike Plato, God is not a God who doesn't like physical stuff. He loves physical stuff, and that's why he redeems physical stuff, and he becomes physical stuff. So that's how God is holy, not by contrasting himself with this mucky, mucky world. He's holy by diving into the mucky, mucky world. And that, folks, is the kind of holiness that we are called to emulate. We're to imitate God, Ephesians 5.1. And so our holiness isn't to be a holiness that contrasts itself uh, with the mucky world. It's not to be a holiness that is, we're so heavenly minded and living in this harmonious realm that we're above all the, uh, all the flux of this world and the problems of this world and the details of this world. No, the holiness that we're to emulate is the kind of holiness that God exemplifies when he becomes a human being. Uh, our holiness is not to be in contrast to those sinners out there, as though they were worse sinners than us, which they're not, because we're the worst of sinners. Uh, rather, it's to be kind of the, the kind of holiness that contrasts itself with Plato and with the Pharisees, and rather gravitates, dives into, embraces the sinfulness of the world. It doesn't condone the sin, but embraces all that are in bondage to it, and we are chief of those. We're the supreme example of that. And so we're to be a people who demonstrate the holiness of God by our willingness to get involved in the nitty-gritty mess of life, dealing with real people in real situations, particular people, particular situations, uh, with particular problems, people whose lives are too complex to fit any kind of church formula or church policy or some sort, because lives are always too complicated to fit those policies, and, 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 and deals with reality, people in the nitty-gritty trenches of life, because that's what love does. Love doesn't run away from, from the problems. It embraces it. It, it deals with it. It, it, it gravitates towards, redeems the messiness of life. 
That's the kind of holiness. It's an incarnational holiness. It's a cruciform holiness. And it's completely different than Plato's version of what is holy or what is spiritual. We're to have an earthy spirituality. Earthy. Getting down to the nitty-gritty details and mess of life. So what does this have to do with these 11 verses? Full of compliments and encouragements and greetings and receive and welcomes and pray for's and, and, and even confrontations. What does that have to do with that? What it means is that these little niceties, they could look like that, if you're thinking platonically, uh, these are not an addendum to, to the uh, spirituality of the book of Colossians. It, it, this isn't sort of an add-on, sort of a, 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 an afterthought of Paul's, a nice way of wrapping things up. Signing off now, dearly beloved. No, this rather, these 11 verses illustrate the nitty-gritty kind of spirituality, the incarnational spirituality of the New Testament. Here we're seeing, in these 11 verses, the kingdom in its most practical form. We're seeing the love of the kingdom manifested in its most practical ways as it invades basic human de decency. These nitty-gritty details of who greets who, who encourages who, who loves who, who prays for who, but we sometimes say that the devil is in the details, and that's sometimes true in some matters, but here, God is in the details, because the God who became small and entered into our messiness and entered into our little trivial details is always a God who lives and breathes by becoming small and paying attention to the little details of life. And here, it's about common human decency. In fact, this is how Paul always ends his letters, with these kind of greetings and welcomings and receives and compliments and things of those sort. Now, it's interesting to note that some of these relationships that he mentions here, uh, which seem so harmonious and complimentary and stuff, they weren't always that way. So he mentions o Onesimus. And here he's a beloved and faithful disciple, and, and um, uh, everything's cool. But see, some of you read the book of Philemon, and um, there was a time when that, that got kind of messy. Now, in the first century, they had a form of slavery. It wasn't like the slavery we had in pre-abolition South where you treated people like cattle. Uh, it was, it was, they had indentured servants. And, and these people were owned by their masters. Their masters had total rights over them. But they would work their way towards freedom over a process of, of a number of years. And uh, Philemon owned Onesimus. And Onesimus, for whatever reason, ran away from Philemon. It may have been, some scholars speculate, that we know that, that they both, Philemon and Onesimus, received the gospel. They believed in Jesus. And it may be that, that Onesimus uh, heard that in Christ there's neither slave nor free. And he took that literally and said, okay, well, I'm free and ran away. Well, he, he runs to Paul. And so what we find in the book of Philemon is Paul writing Philemon. Uh, and, and he's talking to Onesimus as well. And here we're dealing with how, how, does, how does Christianity relate to culture, fallen culture? Because you can't overturn culture overnight. This institution is dehumanizing, but you can't just wave a magical wand and make it go away. No, the gospel has to change people's hearts, which eventually changes the culture. So how do you negotiate that? Christ and culture can get very messy. And so here Paul uh, instructs Philemon to... He basically subverts the whole slavery mentality by saying, Philemon, you treat Onesimus as a brother in Christ. And Onesimus, you go back and you treat Philemon as a brother in Christ and work for him in this institution, which we've got to work with, you work for him as a brother in Christ. And there's some words of confrontation there. You read Paul, and he's pretty bold at some points, especially towards Philemon. You know, he says, whatever debt he owes, go ahead and charge it to me. 
Though I won't even mention that you owe me your life, <laughs> which you just did mention. But um, he, he confronts him in, in a pretty strong way. But, you know, here, apparently, Philemon got the point, and Onesimus got free. Because now Onesimus is traveling around, and he's, uh, he, he's mentioned without Philemon even being there, which was unheard of if he was still owned by Philemon. He would say, Onesimus, the slave of Philemon. Instead, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. This is beautiful. So here's all harmonious and wonderful, but there's messiness that preceded that. It's even more true when Paul mentions Barnabas and Mark. Here they're beloved brothers in Christ and receive Mark as a brother and all of that. But it wasn't always that way. Some of you have read the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, the church commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go out and preach the gospel together as a team. And Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement, so he's always encouraging others. So he wants to bring his cousin, this, 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 this newbie named Mark. And so Mark tags along. Paul wasn't in, uh, uh, in favor of it, but he put up with it. But Mark became a burden. He, just, he was slowing them down. And so Paul, Paul says, enough of this. You've got to cut him loose because uh, the, the mission is more important than this. And Barnabas couldn't do it. No, he's my cousin. Come on. Work with him here. He, he'll be okay. And they split over this. Now, the Holy Spirit had commissioned them to go out as a team. But they split. We sometimes have this idea that the early church was like all oh, so wonderful and harmonious and, and splendid and, 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 and problem-free, and all the problems came later on. Folks, the New Testament deals with people, and people are problems. People have always been problems. Uh, that didn't start recently. No, it's always been this way. And so we have in the New Testament problems, fights, splits. That, that goes on there. Uh, but apparently they worked it through, it reconciled, and Mark matured. So here Paul is recommending Mark to this congregation. Now, I mentioned all that to say this. If you're thinking platonically, you would have thought these people would have been above these little spats. Uh, that these spats are trivial. Come on, let's look at the grandness of God in the universe, the bigness of God, the glory of God in the heavenly realms of, of all harmony and beauty and consciousness or whatever. But see, that's platonic thinking. New Testament thinking is this. No, God, these spats, these spats, these problems, these, these, these little messes, this is where the spirituality is found in working through these things. Uh, the holiness of the New Testament, the holiness of God is a God who incarnates himself in the nitty-gritty details, the nitty-gritty spats, the nitty-gritty fights that people have, works through things in order to bring about reconciliation. And so what these passages are showing that that the, these, these little tiny details of who, who do you greet, who do you welcome, who do you affirm, who do you compliment, who do you pray for, well, God is in that. The God who reveals himself by becoming small and entering our mess is always a God who breathes in the small things and in the messy things and in the, the, the nicety things, the details of human relationships. These are all just different ways of affirming the worth of people, and God is in that, and it's supremely important. These compliments, these encouragements... They're ways of saying these things are not trivial. That's platonic thinking. These things are very, very important. They're little acts of grace. Little acts of grace that affirm the existence of another. Oh, yeah, this guy greets you as well, and this guy greets you. Well, why even communicate that? Because those things are important. They acknowledge your existence. They acknowledge that you're important. They acknowledge that you have worth. If the supreme act of love is giving your life for another, well, then the first act of love is just acknowledging the existence of another and the worth of another. And we do that by these words of affirmation and encouragement and greeting, hello, and welcoming, and making a person feel very much at home. It's especially important, you guys, in this culture where we're, frankly, starting to lose some of these things. 
uh, the last 20, 30 years, a number of social commentators have noted how in America, common decency is starting to just go out the door. And I'm sure some of you had noticed this. Uh, part of the problem is, in fact, a large part of the problem is we, we are just increasingly self-absorbed. We think we have this attitude of, I mind my business, you mind your business. Leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. And so we pass each other as though we didn't exist. We got our headphones on to our music, and we're all involved in our smartphones, and the existence of other people is just not acknowledged. So you can't take it for granted that the person in front of you is going to hold the door open as you go through, which used to be just sort of assumed. Or saying hello to a person, or good morning to a person, or isn't it a wonderful day? Those sorts of things where you just acknowledge the existence of another person are starting to go by the wayside. You know, and it's manifested in a bunch of other ways as well. When I was first at the University of Minnesota, back in the dinosaur days of the late 70s, you know, when a professor walked in the classroom, everyone shut up. Because you know that you're there to learn from the professor, so out of respect, when the professor walks in, pssst, class would be quiet. Now, 10 years later, when I started teaching at a university, it wasn't quite that way. You walk in, and it would take a minute or two before the class would finally simmer down, and then you could start to teach, but they didn't acknowledge you right away. It took a while. And then, 16 years later, which is the last time I taught full-time at the university, it was still more different. You'd walk in, and they wouldn't shut up. You had to tell them to shut up. Class, shut up! I'm going to talk here. You had to earn the right to talk, you know, which you think you would have got by going to grad school. But now, they're just yapping back and forth. And, you have to, and sometimes, even when you tell them to shut up, they won't shut up. I had this one class where I walked in, and they were chatting all busy, you know, like they do. And um, I said, OK, let's, let's uh, open your books. It's time to you know, start studying stuff. Well, these, the class slowly simmered down. But this one girl in the front row and this other girl in the back row kept a conversation going, yapping about what went on that weekend or whatever. That was amazing. So I just let it go. I just leaned back against the blackboard and just, I was curious, how long would this go on? And so we're all, the whole class is listening to this conversation going back and forth. Finally, the girl in the front row turns and looks at me like I was a stranger, like, who are you? What are you doing here? And I said, oh, don't mind me, or, you know, I'm sure that this Carry on. I'm sure this class paid their tuition to hear this very important conversation you guys are having. <laughs> and they continued. They went back at it for another 20, 30 seconds. See, the common decency is going out uh, the window. And, and, and so here's the thing. If we're not intentionally resisting the culture, we are absorbing it. If we're not intentionally resisting the culture, we are going to be absorbing it. And it can come to the point, folks, and I, I fear this direction, where we will say things like, we preach these grand ideals like, oh, the love of God is manifested in our willingness to lay down our life for one another. And even for our enemies, we would rather lay down our life than, than, than kill them. And that's beautiful and that's true. But if we're not careful, we'll end up saying those sorts of things, yet we're unwilling to be inconvenienced to welcome a stranger who visits the church. To say hello, to acknowledge an existence, to say, we're glad you're here, we welcome you. We'll be inconvenienced to die for a stranger, but we won't be inconvenienced to even say, hello, we welcome you. Folks, if the ultimate act of, of kingdom love is laying down your life for an enemy, well, the first act of the kingdom, the first sniff of the kingdom is common decency. It's niceness, kingdom niceness, where we affirm you exist and you matter and you're important and we're glad you're here. Where you compliment what you can compliment and you receive and welcome the way Paul instructs people to do here in the last 11 verses of uh, Colossians. Jesus said this in John 13. He said, a new commandment I'm giving to you. It really was just a deepening of an old commandment. 
Love one another, even as I have loved you. That's the bottom line. We're to love one another as Christ loves us. While we're yet sinners, while we're yet messy, while we're yet imperfect, even when we have bad breath, B.O., all the rest, we're to love one another the way Christ loves us. That you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. This is going to be the sign, the advertisement. The way that you are loving one another day to day in the little things is how people will know that you're my disciples. That Jesus Christ is for real. That he's the son of God and we're followers of his. If you love one for another. Well, how is that love going to be seen? How is that love going to be noticed? What's the first impression of that love? Now, it's wonderful when there's someone in danger and you risk your life. Maybe even you give your life for them. That's clearly a manifestation of love. Or when you, you know, share your finances with somebody else that you're sharing life with to help them through things. That, that, that's a wonderful expression of love. But that's not the kind of love that we, that we demonstrate day to day. What's the first sign of love when a person comes into our gathering for the first time? What's the first aroma of the kingdom? It's not in the grand, give your life for one another. It's in the greet and meet and welcome and receive and compliments and encouragements. It's in the nitty-gritty details of life, and God is in the small. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is always kind. Love is never rude. Love is never arrogant, which is just another way of saying love is always nice. Love is always hospitable. Love is always encouraging. Love is always welcoming. This is the first aroma of love. This is what love looks like on, on the bottom line. Uh, to to a, a platonic thinker, this would be trivial stuff, Mr. Rogers stuff, boring stuff. But if you're thinking incarnationally, the true God who is revealed in the small, in the nitty-gritty details of life is a God who lives in, breathes in, thrives in the small and the nitty-gritty details of life. And so these little tiny things become supremely important. God is in the details of human relationships. How do you acknowledge one another? How do you welcome one another? How do you greet one another? And so what this means for us, Woodland Hills, is, is this. It ought to be the case if we're living and breathing in kingdom love. If, I'm talking to Woodland Hills folks here now. That it ought to be the case that the aroma of this gathering is one that exudes the spirit that we see here in these last 11 verses. Welcoming and receiving and greeting and acknowledging and encouraging and complimenting. It ought to be the case that the first thing someone notices as they come into a gathering like this is, man, what a friendly bunch of people. What a welcoming bunch of people. What an encouraging bunch of people. You know, what a, what, what, what a, you know they make you just feel important and, and, and part of them. That ought to be the spirit, the, the first sniff of the kingdom. Maybe in time they'll, they'll find out the depth of which this goal is about loving enemies. But the first sniff has got to be about nice and welcoming and affirming. Conditioned as we are by American culture, we can easily minimize that, overlook it, think it's not important. But it's supremely important. And the truth is that whether we as a church have a, a chance to impact a family over the long haul or not, could depend on whether somebody just says, hi, my name's blah, blah, what's your name? I'm so glad to see you here. That can make all the difference in the world. Things hang in the balance on whether we do the details of, the king, of kingdom love. I, I, there's a, a, a person that's a parishioner, a big fan of the church, big fan of our theology, reads all the stuff, really on fire for it. They, they, were, they had a business trip up here, this is several years ago, uh, for three weeks. And afterwards, they, they, they wrote me this letter, kind of just kind of giving me their observation, which I really appreciate, because we always need outside input on this. And he, they, he loved 
the ministry of this church, the outreach to the poor and the homeless. He loved that, the food shelf. He loved the, the worship. He loved the preaching. He loved all these things about the church. He says, but there's one thing I'd like to encourage you on. And he says, for three weeks I went and visited your church. He says, I felt completely invisible. I wasn't, you know, you have this kind of greeting at the end of a, a worship service, but no one went beyond that and asked my name or where I'm from or if I'm visiting or anything. He says, I would have thought the theology would have cashed out differently than that. He's right. We can preach, give your life for your enemy till we're blue in the face. But most people are never going to see that. What they'll see is, did you say hi? Did you say Glad you're here, because we should be glad they're here. You see, it's, it's a, here the rubber hits the road. This is, this is the 101, but it's supremely important in the kingdom. And so, folks, I want to, as, as one of the leaders here within the church, I want to encourage us in this way. I want to commission us in this way. Can we make a commitment? If, you, if this is your church body, you know, if you belong to a different church, apply to your own church. But if, if this is your church body, will you take some responsibility for setting the aroma of this place? Uh, for, for making sure that there's a good kingdom sniff of niceness and welcoming and receiving and complimenting and encouraging here. Because after all, remember, Wilden Hills Church is nothing over and above the people that follow the vision of Wilden Hills Church. You are Wilden Hills Church. There's no ethereal Wilden Hills out there other than you. So the niceness of the, of, of the Wilden Hills Church and the kingdom uh, encouragement and welcoming and receiving of Wilden Hills Church will never outrun you. And so can we each take some responsibility for that? Can we, can we commit to making it impossible for someone to visit and not be greeted by at least two or three people over and beyond the people who hand out bulletins because that's what they're there for and God bless them and thank them for that. But, but beyond that, people expect bulletin hand routers to do that. But can we make it so that it's impossible to visit here and not have a few people say, hi, what's your name? Glad you're here, whatever. And maybe they've been here for 20 years, but they're new to you, and so you, you welcome them. And it doesn't mean you're going to be lifelong you know, BFFs for the rest of your life. It just means you're, you're acknowledging their existence. They've got worth. They matter, and you're glad they're here. Can we commit to, to being a people like that? Because um, that's the first sniff of the kingdom. You may be volunteering in 100 other ministries, which is wonderful and good and necessary, but what people will see is initially this. What's the aroma here? Spend time in the gathering area, just greeting people. I know that's hard for eyes like me. It's just not natural. I know I act like an extrovert in front of you, but I, it, 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 believe me, afterwards my battery's done. I've got to go, go in my cave for a couple hours. Uh, for high eyes like me, it, it feels weird to go up to a stranger and say, Hi, my name's Greg, what's your name, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's, it, it's an inconvenience, but everything about the kingdom, remember, is about bleeding. Everything's about inconvenience. It's, it's kind of inconvenient to give your life for a stranger, right? Well, <laughs> this is a little bit less than that. It's about in being inconvenienced to affirm the existence of another, the first sniff of the kingdom. One other thing I want to say about these 11 verses. They, they, they stress the importance of human decency, the kingdom invading human decency on a ground level, to all, all these acquaintances. These folks know each other's name, but they're not all intimately related. They just know each other's name. And they extend greetings and, and those kingdom niceties to one another because they're important. But it's also clear from this passage that there were other relationships that went deeper than that. So we read about this house church at the, at, at, that met at Nympha's house. Um, see, in the, in, the, in the early church, these were folks that met on a daily basis in a hostile environment. Persecution is always just around the corner. Their lives are woven together. Here's where the one another's of the New Testament take place. 57 of them. They're in relationship to one another. They're on the inside of each other's lives. 
I'm sure even among those 20 or 30, which is as large as the New Testament church could be, there's other relationships that, that were even more kind of unique, two or three who, who would go deeper into each other's lives. And then Paul mentions this team around him. Yeah, he was an individual evangelist, but he, he didn't go solo. He had a team around him that supported him. And they talked through stuff. They shared life together. And I know I say this a lot, but in our hyper-individualistic culture, I can't say it too often, that we all need relationships like that. We're made in the image of the triune God, the relational God, and we're never ourselves fully human, the human that God called us to be, unless we're in relationships that begin to replicate that triune relationship, relationships that are deep, that are on the inside, relationships where you don't have to hide anything. I saw a card recently, it was a friendship card, it was a little pig, and said, being a friend means I don't have to hold my tummy in. <laughs> well, that, 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 that's it, where you can let it all hang out, you know? You're not trying to hide anything. Where you can take off the facade that you wear in other places. We need really, a fundamental human need is to, is to believe that you are known, fully known, and loved as fully known. Do you know me, and do you love me as I am? And all, with all my warts and everything else, am I loved here? That's a fundamental human need. And I don't believe we'll ever resist the broader culture in all the ways that it needs to be resisted. Or we'll ever thrive and we'll ever grow the way that we're supposed to thrive and grow and do ministry unless we are surrounded by some people who share this conviction and are helping us do it as we help them do it. We're social creatures. We conform to our environment. And so either we're going to conform to the broader environment or we're going to have a sub-environment that we conform to. We need people around us. We need people who see our blind spots because by definition we don't see them. Blind spots. If we aspire to be more Christ-like, I need to know my blind spots because I'm not going to see them. I need other eyes on my life. Not to judge me, but to love me and to help me in the areas where I am weak. There's some sociologists now, in fact many, who argue that we can't really ever really know ourselves except in relationship to others. The way that we get to know ourselves is, is uh, uh, by interacting with others. We're that relational, down to our essence. It blows apart this idea that the way to know yourself is to go out into the woods for a year and meditate on your navel, which is something, I'm going to go and I'm going to find myself. Well, good luck. You're going to fall into a labyrinth of nonsense. And you may think that you'll know yourself, but see, you won't because it's not objective. You're caught in the inside of your skull. It's like our eyes can't see ourselves. They're, they're embedded. We can only look out. If we want to really look at ourselves, we need other eyes. We can't just pluck our eyes out and look at ourselves objectively. No, we're trapped in our own subjectivity. We need other eyes on us to see how we really are, how we're really strong and how we're really weak, and to help us in those areas. We get to know ourselves in relationship with others. I recently, I mean very recently, this is cutting edge stuff here. Uh, I recently came, uh, became aware of this like in the last two weeks with my own small group. I, Shelly and I have shared life with, this, uh, with three other couples for almost 20 years now. And we're not everything a kingdom group should be, but we do love each other. We do life together. We share everything. We, we let our tummies out. We know each other, uh, warts and all. And we love each other, and sometimes we have to confront one another. So here's what happened. I read somewhere that, that the amount of alcohol that Americans consume per year could feed all the children in Haiti. And that got me. I think the Spirit was said, got me thinking, gosh, how much do I spend on alcohol? And knowing that I'm supposed to be a good steward of his resources, I started keeping a track record. It was pretty surprising. <laughs> um, and, and I thought, I, I, I felt that this is, this is a waste of money. Uh, I am 
excuse, I don't know any other way to put it, but I'm p- pissing away money here that could be feeding kids. And so I, I, I gave him the conviction that, that I, this needs to stop. Now, once I stopped, I just cut out alcohol, I realized there's other reasons why I needed to cut out alcohol. I had for 10, 12 years been taking a shot of whiskey to go to sleep. I always have sleep problems. I found that uh, a shot of whiskey would just kind of get me over the edge and help me sleep. Uh, Ambien and all those other kind of things, medications screw up my brain. I don't know how it works with you, but man, I take those two nights in a row and you feel like you're drugged out the rest of the day and you hear yourself thinking, yeah, I don't like it. But a shot of whiskey, that was just, just what the doctor ordered. Actually, he didn't. It's what I ordered. And then, see, what happens is this. Slowly but surely, the, the little shot of whiskey turns into a glass of whiskey or scotch. I upgraded to scotch. And then, then the glass gets a little bigger. Uh, then it turns into two glasses. And, and, and you just kind of regularly you know, just kind of in, increase it without even really noticing it until you stop to take an inventory of how are we doing. And then I found that when I stopped, I couldn't get to sleep. I needed this stuff to get to sleep, which means I don't need this stuff. Uh, to be dependent on alcohol to get to sleep is not a good thing. And so it just confirmed that I need to quit this stuff. And I'm not saying I'm not going to drink again, but i got to go through a season where I control it. It can't control me because we're not supposed to be controlled by stuff, right? I mean, there's, there's necessary medications, but folks, booze isn't it, all right? Uh, and, and, and if we're kidding ourselves, we say otherwise. So you, you got to get control of it. We should not be controlled by anything. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast in that freedom. And so for the last three, four weeks, uh, that's where it's been. I shared this with my small group as I'm going through the process. And they affirmed my decision. They kind of noticed the increase in drinking and, and thought, man, that, that's probably not for financial reasons from their view, but uh, you know, just for dependency reasons, you know, it would be good to take a break. But beyond that, I then got a bunch of feedback that was so interesting and informative. Because we began to talk about this um, and ask the question, Greg, why is it, not just with alcohol, but with everything, you tend to go to the extremes. Why do you always go to excess? And it's true, I mean, in, in every area of my life, when I exercise, I, I push myself to the point where I inevitably get injured. When I was younger, you know, I couldn't just run a 10K. I had to run a marathon. And then after a marathon, I had to run a 50K. And then I had to run a 50 mile. Then I had to run a 100K. Then I had to run a 100 mile until finally my knees blow out. You know, what, what's with that, with that, that kind of extremism? And I'm always the one that wants it louder and wants it faster and wants it more and wants it spicier. And, and I'm always pushing the envelope. I, I always want activity. I hate just sort of sitting down and and in all these areas, I just tend towards extremism. What is it with that? And the truth is, it's been like that my whole life. As I look back on it, I always had to be in motion. I can never sit still. I used to go on swing sets for hours just because the motion felt normal to me. I'd have to rock myself humming uh, to sleep every night, rocking my head back and forth in the pillow or banging my head on the pillow. I always had to be in motion. And in classes, I always had to push the envelope. I'd be bored. I experienced boredom as a form of pain. I always have. The worst kind of pain. And so when I'm in pain, I'll do anything to get out of it. So I would start disrupting the class just to make it interesting. And I didn't care if I got in trouble. At least that wasn't boring. I'd rather be spanked. That's exciting compared to just sitting there listening to this nun to yap about nothing, and which is boring. Or I, I lived in this imaginary world that I always superimpose on, on the ordinary world just to keep it interesting. You know, imagine all sorts of weird stuff. What is it with that? In fact, this, then... One person in the group did a little research. She's always researching on the, on the internet and found this thing called SPD, which is sensory processing disorder. Uh, and I have a hypo version of that where the, the, because of the dopamine chemical reactions in the brain, you always crave more. You want more and more stimulus. No matter what, what's going on, you always crave more of it. And when I read the symptoms of that, it fit me to a T. ADHD is just like one strand of it, but the whole thing 
you know, the problems these people have with life and the tending towards extremism and stuff, uh, it just fit to a T. And there's something very legitimizing and normalizing about fitting a category of abnormal. It's like, ah, there I am. Story of my life. It totally explains why my new addiction is speed metal. Every day I've got to get a certain fix of my speed metal, and I turn up the volume, and I, it, it calms me down. Uh, you know, Shelly one time wanted to listen to what I was listening to, and I turned on the volume because I knew she'd be a little sensitive to that. And even after I turned it down, she put it on for about a half second, took it off screaming, saying, what is this? This hurts. This is painful. But to me, it's so calming because it's just like, I just, I'm just getting this, this pure stimulation. I just love it. It calms me down. I go to sleep to this stuff. I did last night. It, 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 there's a congruity there. Plus, the drumming is just so awesome. But see, here's the thing. That assessment helps me know myself. And know, I can know my strengths and I can know my weaknesses. And how important it is to know that. There's, there's strengths to this. You know, if I challenge the right way. There's things we should always be wanting more of, right? And so I'm always the one on our executive team that's wanting more. We, we can have a bigger impact. We can you know, do this. We can do this. And, and never satisfied with just what we're doing. You know, I'm always driving towards more. And poor Janice is the one who has to negotiate my idealism and drive with the real world about how long that's going to take. And that's always been kind of an you know, interesting little dance that we've got to do. Because I'm always like turning ahead. And she's like, okay, let's be real about this. It's going to take some time. It's like, no, I want it yesterday. Uh, and, and, and so there's good applications of that, or wanting to be more radical for Christ, or, or not settling for standard questions, or standard answers to, to questions that really don't make a whole lot of sense. My brain just wants, wants more, it has to make more sense, got to bring the parts together. So you're always questioning things, and that's a good thing. But of course, every virtue is a vice when not controlled. And so in all these other areas, like alcohol, or a bunch of other things, uh, that's going to be my weakness. And that's where I'm going to need constraints, and help, and people around me to be pointing out, Greg, do you really want to go there? No, you don't. You see, we've got to know ourselves as we grow in the kingdom, and that takes community. So I encourage you, if you've got some relationships that are meaningful to you and, and they're kingdom people, take them a little deeper. Be vulnerable. Take some risk and invite them in on your life and, and start to share life together where you're helping one another grow in Christ. And if you don't have those relationships, I, 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 I encourage you to pray about getting into them. Beyond your own family, pray about getting into them and walk with your eyes open. And then start doing things that help you meet people, like spending some time greeting one another, doing the kingdom nice after the service. And you might find that once in a while you'll connect with somebody and they're in the same kind of situation and that begins to form a relationship which you could eventually form a little kingdom community. Or you take the Cultivate classes that we have on Tuesday or Wednesday. Or get involved in any of our ministries, the food shelf or the refuge or anything like that. Great way to meet people. Or our Tuesday's mom's class with young kids. Great if you're in that season of life. Great way to meet other people at that stage of life. Or if there's openings with our sojourners, our Discover the Kingdom class. All these are just ways of coming in contact with others to forge relationships that go beyond the surface, that go deep, so we can know ourselves and grow in the kingdom and be all that we're called to be. And then beyond that, folks, I encourage us, and here's my, my SPD talking, my extremism talking, can we make this place the friendliest, most welcoming group of people in the Twin Cities, if not the world? How's that? Let's go for it. Just make it impossible for someone to visit and not be greeted by two or three people. All right? I know today it's going to be weird because I just told you to do it, so everyone's like, okay, now we've got to obey the rule. So I'll give you one week off starting next week, but don't forget it! See, it really, it's so important. Be nice. That's not trivial. 
Plato would say it's trivial. The incarnational God says this is supremely important. Here's where the rubber hits the road. Would you stand? I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you have any need whatsoever, I encourage you to uh, come up here and pray with these folks. Don't carry that burden alone because we're never supposed to walk alone. All right? Let these people intercede for you. Abba, Father, you're an upside-down God, and this is an upside-down kingdom. And things we think are trivial are supremely important. And so, Lord, uh, help us to be a people who don't just profess the ultimate act of love, giving our life for one another, but practice the first act of love, affirming each other's existence, affirming the worth of people, welcoming strangers, making them feel at home, complimenting whatever there is to compliment, embracing them as they are. Help us to be a people who, wherever we go and when we come together, exude the aroma of the kingdom. By this, the world will know that we are your disciples by our love, which initially just looks like niceness, friendliness, welcoming. Holy Spirit, remind us of this because we will forget as we move out to a culture that uh, is losing this. Help us to remember. Bug us. In Jesus' name, and all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and be nice.